This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Ensemble Building. William LeCue. Reviving Feng Shui. And Extending Periclean Athens. Rattle of dice and the crunch of Dorito bags tell us that once more we are entering the friendly confines, the friendly uh, in-room paneling, shag-carpeted confines of the gaming hut. And here in the gaming hut, there is something of a throwdown brewing between two schools, I suspect, of player character makeup. And Robin, what can you, what light can you shed on this ill-defined but uh, definitely involving a flanking bonus conflict? Well, I, I want to take a look at the phenomenon of the murder hobo, uh, which, as gaming terms go, although, you know, all gaming terms get fuzzy, because, of course, if you get uh, three nerds in a room, there will be 14 semantic distinctions. But this is one of my uh, favorite ones, and I think it's because it's a newer one, it hasn't acquired 17 different contrary meanings yet. And I think it accurately describes a phenomenon that you see in particularly in the F20 tradition of uh, D&D and D&D-inspired games, but in other role-playing games as well, where the group of characters is a rootless band, hence the hobos, who are unrestrained by mere matters of morality or character sympathy, er ergo the murder. So the idea is that these are irresponsible characters who have no particular reason to be together, or be part of the society and are therefore give whatever narrative that you're trying to create a sense of unsatisfying chaos because the characters are not behaving as you would expect them to behave in a conventional narrative where you care about the characters and there's a reason for them doing what they're doing. And so it implies uh, a certain aimlessness, a certain detachment from ordinary emotional concerns, and also, well, just, you know, being murdery and hobo-y. So this is something that I think comes down, first of all, to a question of player expectation, because I would think that there are some groups who just totally want to do that, and that in that case, it's up to the GM to modify expectations and to do things of interest to a band of ravening raiders who don't want to ever set down roots or have a particular grand scheme or narrative in mind. So, on the other hand, of course, they do uh, recapitulate Hegel, which is not something that always happens. And how do they recapitulate Hegel? Hegel, uh, in his famous analysis of how societies form, talks about the warband as the fundamental uh, model of society, because he was German and therefore didn't understand civilization. And so the uh, his notion is that when young men are given no outside structure, they form themselves up into a war band whose basic and only goal is to aggrandize themselves at the expense of their neighbors and go around killing folk. And they create within that war band a sort of uh, hierarchy uh, with a gang leader at the head of it, basically. And that these uh, gangs then eventually become competing tribes. The competing tribes uh, join into nationhood and ta-da, the nation arises out of the war band. This is all Hegel, of course, but it is nice to see it happening in uh, Dungeons & Dragons, thus proving that all you need to do 
to make Hegel work out is be playing D&D instead of living in the real world. But there you right, go. You have to have experience points and uh, magic treasure, and there you go. Absolutely. And Hegel is a step around the corner. I'm fond of saying that uh, the uh, sort of the difference between the uh, Dungeons & Dragons tradition and the Warhammer uh, fantasy roleplay tradition is the difference between the American experience of heavily armed strangers wandering around the land, which we think of as the Wild West. So the heavily armed strangers, while murdery and hoboey, certainly, are also recognizably killing owl hoots and varmints and uh, problems, and eventually sort of, through their actions in a similarly Hegelian mystical fashion, the West becomes civilized and towns spring up. Right, and so D&D replaces the owl hoots with owl bears, exactly. and there you go. And it's the same, uh, and it's the same model, whereas a Warhammer points out that historically what happens when you have heavily armed strangers wandering around the land, you get the Thirty Years' War, and Everything goes to hell, and plague stretches over the land, and a third of Germany dies. So I think that uh, I, how you feel about murder hobos may come from a fundamental philosophical difference in the sense of how you feel about heavily armed strangers wandering about the land doing uh, some arbitrary version of good. Because with a very few exceptions, most parties at least claim to be you know, uh, good-aligned or, or neutral-aligned. There, there are very few of them that are actually playing you know, um, the, the Bender clan or the Sawney Bean family. Until they arrive at the village of Hamlet, and it's a whole module where there's no one to kill, and you know that each peasant has gold pieces, mm -hmm. that then everything changes. Yeah, right. The late film critic Robin Wood has a phrase that he used to describe sort of half of the Howard Hawks film corpus that always springs to my mind when I think about this, and he describes the theme of about half of Howard Hawks' films, the, the ones about comradeship, as being the lure of irresponsibility. Mm -hmm. That they are about people either on the fringes of civilization or people who are, uh, as in the case of the comedy, bringing up baby too civilized and have to be decivilized by Catherine Hepburn, that uh, there's a fantasy and, at and play. And if Catherine Hepburn is decivilizing you, by God, you were too civilized. Uh, well, indeed. Yeah. And that, that's, that's exactly the storyline yeah. of... Uh, uh, bring up baby and and if you haven't seen that stop watching this podcast go see bring up baby and then restart the podcast um and so i think that a part of the murder hobo phenomenon is that people do actually fantasize about being able to be ruthless and being able to be ruthless that they want to at least in the safe percentile d20 confines of a role playing session to not take any guff from people to express their power over others and to just explore a sandbox by kicking down its doors and uh, taking its sand with swords. But let us say for the sake of this discussion that there is a sense of dissatisfaction that is arising from this, that you've created your simulated Hegelian social environment with this uh, war band, but you're not particularly digging it, that mm -hmm. you want it to be more like, uh, you know, even a Conan or Fafford in the Grey Moser story, which are certainly not stories of heroes of rectitude restoring order to the world per se, although I would argue that they both restore order by clamping down on even worse bad guys than them, that they're still roguish heroes. But let's say that you want at least that level of character sympathy and narrative coherence, but that the structures that you have in place are bringing you more to this sort of uh, default 
uh, Hegelian war band where people just do what they want and maybe the person with the strongest voice has a little more influence. The question is, how do you then turn that into what I would call an ensemble procedural cast? Because if you look at iconic storytelling, that's, again, storytelling where you take on external obstacles in which there is a cast of people addressing the problem of the week, and Star Trek would be an example of that, or pretty much any cop show where there's a team of cops and they're solving a case of the week, or uh, Buffy, or, you know, most of the other uh, Joss Whedon shows, Mm -hmm. that there is a group of people who are solving problems in part by kicking the problem's butts and in part by thinking their way through it, but that there is a reason why all of these people are together, and that when you tune in each week, you are enjoying their togetherness and often the underlying themes, sometimes very explicitly, as in the classic cast Star Trek movies, the good ones anyway, is about loyalty and about sort of a surrogate family of problem solvers that arises. So what techniques would you suggest, Ken, to create more of that feeling of the group as a cohesive, unified force rather than as a roving anarchy? Well, I think traditionally that kind of decision ideally happens during character creation, where you have a character creation system that either rewards involvement in a greater society, like, say, RuneQuest does, or uh, HeroQuest, uh, Vampire even, or that at the very least allows it to happen in a, in a game-meaningful way, so that you have something like uh, Weapons of the Gods' character creation, where you are literally buying pieces of the background at character generation, and so therefore you have some reason to for your character to interact with the background in a more meaningful way than stab it if it looks rich and owlberry. <laughs> I, that is the problem. The 1% of owlbears who are retarding the uh, economic recovery, I think, do need some stabbing. Well, see, there you go. Uh, once again, Hegel and Occupy Wall Street uh, can work together in uh, murder-hobo territory. And indeed... Uh, perhaps not that far from either. But the, um, but the, the other thing that you need, obviously, for an ensemble sort of storyline to work is a reason for all the characters to get together other than we needed a cleric and you were it. And that is something that I, I think I first noticed when, uh, John Tynes mentioned it as a problem in Call of Cthulhu when he wrote, uh, Delta Green and said what you need is a narrative structure that pulls all the characters together. And then when he and Greg did Unknown Armies, there was another very strong effort at building that. And then, of course, right around that time, or actually I think a little bit before, um, obviously, uh, uh, Jonathan Tweet had, uh, and Mark Reinhagen had put together uh, the chancels and, and sorts of things like that for Ars Magica. And so you began to see sort of the notion of at-character creation generating your team using points also, and then the things that you built with that would perhaps inform your later actions. And, of course, you can go back. I think Champions probably had mechanics for building a superhero base that you all put points in together. And so that at least had some sort of mechanical uh, system by which you were tied to the real world. Champions, of course, famously also has your DNPCs who give you points. So at least there's one person, one Aunt May or one Lois out there that you care about in between going around and smacking people around just for uh, robbing jewelry stores or whatever. And you don't particularly need a set of mechanics to do that, but in any game you can just sort of do that by posing some quick questions to the players and then being responsive to what the answers are. So, for example, I'm currently running a 13th Age game. 13th Age has 
ways to hook you into the world, specifically through the uh, your relations to these very powerful icon figures, but it doesn't explicitly do anything to tie you all together as a group. Mm-hmm. And in fact, your relationships to the different icons, because you have so many of them, can be sort of a, a force that kind of pulls the characters in different directions. And so what I did in this case was, first of all, to ask the players to decide among themselves. Uh, I gave them a setting, the city of Axis, which is the capital of the empire in a very martial military city. And other than that, I said, okay, so what is your mission? What do you guys all want to be together as a group doing so that you have a reason to act together? You have a goal that you're all working toward. And that, you know, immediately cuts down on the amount of uh, at least tension within the group or the lack of direction within the group. And the other exercise that I gave them, which they found somewhat more difficult, especially since we just finished a season of a drama season game, was what is it that you like and value about each other member of the party? And that became a difficult exercise for many of them because they've been trained particularly to think of conflict. But I think even any you know group that you're going to spring this on, even without you know the drama system element, is going to have a bit of trouble with that because they're used to thinking about role-playing in terms of their uh, conflict and bickering with other members of the party. And of course, uh, a certain amount of bickering and zinging is absolutely a part of the sort of ensemble procedural group that we're talking about, whether it's the Fantastic Four, where in the, you know, the classic version, the thing, and human torture always arguing like brothers back and forth. And then the Mr. Fantastic is, and the, the Invisible Woman are sort of the mom and dad and that family arrangement. Or in, again, you know, to go back to Trek again, you have the classic uh, tr- triad of uh, McCoy on one side of Kirk's shoulder and Spock on the other side of Kirk's shoulder and zinging at each other. But that zinging, as it is in my own family, is a sign of affection and familial relationship, whereas in a role-playing group, unless you create a counter-dynamic, that often results in swords being drawn and new characters being rolled up. Yeah, I think that um, when you when you, when you you mention that uh, counter-dynamic, I think that you say, obviously, you know, with some groups, you don't need to have a mechanical uh, reward for having a common goal or having a common connection to the world. But I think that in general, if you want it to be an important part of your game, if you want it to come up roughly as often as it comes up in the sort of ensemble shows that you're talking about, then you do need to have a mechanical reward for it. At the very least, you say experience points that you gain while in pursuit of this goal you've just listed are worth an extra 10%, or um, everyone has a plus one when striking at an opponent who's flanking your buddy, or something like that. Some sort of, in uh, Knights Black Agents, I had uh, tag team abilities, where if you work together on a given task, you're going to be much better at accomplishing it. And and there's similar things like that in uh, Hunter the Vigil. There's uh, there, there's roads for a bunch of guys getting together to bang on a monster. And these kinds of things, I think, are really important mechanically, because I've said it, you know, on a thing I've always said, uh, is that if you don't provide a game effect for it, if there's no mechanics supporting it, then the game is not really about that. And the GM and the players can all agree, handshake, uh, you know, uh, spit on the ground, swear to God, yes, indeed, the game is about that, but if the mechanics are, like in 13th Age, pushing you to have party-sundering arguments about stuff, or, or like uh, Dungeons & Dragons are encouraging you to kill steel, then 
I think that you need to have some sort of mechanic that, that counterbalances that. And I think that in general, putting any sort of social reinforcement mechanic in pays dividends because it ties the characters not just to each other, but it ties them into the world, assuming that you have some sort of system like uh, you have in RuneQuest or like you have even in a possible D&D world where, okay, your cleric worships Thor, that means we're all in favor of Thor, and if we see anyone messing with Thor, we're going to smack him around. So we keep an eye out for ice giants because we know their problem. And so then you have meaning that is built into your character's itinerant stabbing. I wouldn't argue that you don't need a mechanic. I would instead flip that and argue that you do need a mechanism, if not necessarily something that shows up as we traditionally think of a mechanic in a game, but something that reminds you again and again of what that aim is, whatever the aim is. And in this case, the aim is to create a sense of interior cohesion within the group that makes the characters seem more sympathetic and more grounded and more goal-oriented. And that you can do that uh, with mechanics if people are actually remembering to take advantage of the plus one flanking bonus. And if they're thinking of it when they use it in terms of this is a reinforcement of our theme of cooperation. But if they are either forgetting to get that bonus or are just thinking of it in tactical terms and aren't making that emotional connection, that mechanism is not doing its job. Whereas something that just sort of ritually reminds people of what it is that the game is working toward, I think can do uh, just as well at accomplishing that goal. And, and if I reframe it that way, I agree with the, the point that you're making is that it is something that you have to not only introduce at the beginning, but find a way to reinforce so that you're continually moving toward being an ensemble working together as opposed to the Hegelian war band or the group of rootless uh, murder hobos. Now, we uh, talked a bit about the internal cohesion, but there's also the relationship to the world. And if you have a premise where you want to explore the world, uh, again, you can look at, at track as a way that they uh, they're going to a new planet of the week every episode, but there is still a sense of community because there's they're taking their community with them on their spaceship. It's the whole crew of that ship, and that's an idea that was advanced even further and more explicitly in Next Generation, where they're literally, uh, and for not, not a huge apparent reason other than this important thematic reason, taking a small village with them wherever they go, including families and uh, everything. And you could find an equivalent way, even if your characters are explorers who move from place to place, to be tied to a nomadic community so that, again, that you have the sense that not only are they a community in microcosm, but there are other people's welfare for whom they are responsible for. So you could be, you know, a huge uh, band of nomads and you're the forward force of explorers who go and scout the area and find where the food is and encounter the problem of the week. Or you could come up with, you know, again, a, a science fiction equivalent of that. The other possibility, of course, is that rather than bring the community with them, everywhere they go is the community. And this is for adventures that happen in for better or worse civilization. And so, like I mentioned before, if you're a cleric of Thor, you get to a town, you're like, where are the temples of Thor? Who do I need to go see? Who are, who's going to help us out and give us, you know, discount healing spells? And... If there is a cultus of Thor that you, the GM, have built up, so that Thor has got his 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 temples and his sacred places and his holy mountain and all of the bits of things that are part of real world religions, 
because they are part of real-world societies and very, very deeply ingrained in them, you can cause those things to show up in the highly colored adventure society that the characters are going through. Maybe they go to a bar, a, a bar and they get into a big bar fight, and the really big, scary ogre guy that they thought was going to be a problem, he's got a, a hammer symbol uh, around his neck, and he worships Thor, and he's like, I can't beat up on a cleric of Thor, that's against my religion, I'll just smash this other guy over here. And so, if you create these senses of alliances and allegiances, or conversely, if a bunch of uh, Loki-worshipping uh, dark elves show up and start stepping to them in the street for no reason, again, you've tied them into an existing part of the world. They don't necessarily have to be carrying their family around with them the whole time, because, in a way, because they've established this allegiance to Thor, or this allegiance to the Templars, or this allegiance to whoever someone is markedly allied to in the party, and that the party is tied together by these other mechanics, this gives them a home or a family or a or at the very least a uh, a reason to be on one side or the other everywhere they go within civilization. And if they go outside of civilization, then you can have your good old re- release from uh, responsibility and just stab owlbears all the live long day. And when you get back to town, you have that sort of welcome home feeling, and the cler- and the other clerics of Thor are out there. You know, uh, you know, giving you roast bear or whatever it is the holy food of Thor is, and then you you feel like you've really accomplished something as opposed to just gone out and lined your pockets. And that points to another important technique that, as a GM, if you want your characters not to be murder hobos, make sure that they're whenever they arrive in a new place that they're continually encountering not only people who create interesting friction for them and put them in conflict, but people who they find sympathetic and like and want to protect, people who then get into trouble and then they then have to do something on behalf of, so that their if their reason to good do good deeds is entirely abstract and there's no emotional connection to it, but a lot of the people they run into are just uh, making life difficult for them, that's not going to be too many steps away from the character with the lowest impulse control pulling his weapon and starting to uh, bash on the villagers instead of the actual bad guys that you installed into the adventure. So that make sure that the, the emotional connection you're looking for is it's a two-way street and you have to give the characters reasons to care about the people that they encounter just as you sort of, in a gestalt way, want to care about the player characters and like them. And on that note, I think we've uh, formed a war band of our own and are going to go off and attack a rival podcast, or perhaps just move on to another segment. And our sponsor again this week is Matthew Rossi, the electronic author of essay books such as Things That Never Were, Bottled Demon, and At Last Atlantis. He covers the kinds of things we talk about the podcast. It's sort of a suppressed transmission in long form, if you will. He uh, takes a phenomenon, either intellectual or magical or strange, and plays out uh, sort of a Paul Oakenfold techno-elaboration on it if you will. It's uh, tremendously fun to read and tremendously fun to follow Matthew's thinking back and forth through these eminently stealable essay-style treatments. And Matthew's also steeped in the lore of his birthplace, which is Lovecraft's Rhode Island. Yes, he grew up drinking from the Situate Reservoir, famously uh, mentioned, or immortalized, rather, in Lovecraft's 
the color out of space, unless you believe it was the Quabbin Reservoir, and that's the sort of thing that Matthew no doubt addresses in one of his essays. And the uh, price is a steal. It's a mere $3 a piece to load up your Kindle with these books via Amazon. And other formats and venues are pending. Things that never were came out in paper form at one point. I don't know if it's still in print, but you should, with a good will, be able to hustle it down, and it's a very handsome volume. And so that's, again, the works of Matthew Rossi. Go check him out. So the retinal scan you underwent to get in, and perhaps also the body cavity search, suggest, dear listeners, that you've once again entered the high-tech confines of the tradecraft hut, where Ken and I discuss espionage and its relationship to geopolitics, both real and fictional. And in this case, uh, we have sort of a combination of the two. I've just been uh, reading John Keegan's Intelligence in War, and one of the ideas that he puts forth is that our conception of the importance of spying and espionage and tradecraft is enormously influenced by the literature of spying and tradecraft and the uh, thriller. And we talked a bit earlier on the show about Dennis Wheatley and his role of taking his fevered imaginings into the World War II British intelligence operations and in some ways helping to direct uh, misinformation campaigns. And this week, I thought we would look at an earlier incident. This was before World War I, where another uh, perhaps similar writer of thrillers and potboilers arguably helped to form MI5 with the assistance of the Daily Mail. So, Ken, what can you tell us about uh, this now obscure figure called William LeCue, which is uh, Q-U-E-U-X? William LeCue is one of the great lost uh, spy authors of the pre-war era. He wrote an endless number of potboilers. I think he wrote like a hundred novels. Um, and all of them were sort of the same sort of thing with lots of breathless exclamations and people poisoning each other's cigars and running around. And before the Anglo-French Entente of 1904, he wrote a tireless number of novels about a vile and cunning uh, French spymaster who was part of the uh, sort of perfidious threat of the French to land on Britain's shores while they were distracted by the Boer War. And uh, he himself uh, was half French and has a extravagantly French name, shall we say. Yeah. So uh, perhaps there was some uh, displacement going on there. Yeah, his, um, uh, his, his hero of these early novels was a guy, and I forget his first name, I think it was Donald, but it was a, or David, it's, it's a D name. But his last name was Drew, as opposed to LeCue. But when Drew would go to France, he would change his spelling back to D-R-E-U-X, and go around and be, you know, a proto-James Bond avant la lettre who uh, all men wanted to be and all women wanted to be with. And in just the most delightful sort of uh, Mary Suing or Mary Lequeuing uh, or Mary Drewing, he managed to turn that into quite uh, the sort of, um, you know, minor potboiler career. But his, his, his sort of uh, fame really took off after the French alliance was signed or the French Entente was signed. And the Germans became the new bad guys because uh, Kaiser Bill, as we've discussed previously, just didn't know a good thing when he saw it and was trying to muscle the British off the top of the uh, uh, naval and military heap of Europe. And the British, having just gone through the very grave trauma of the Boer War in which they'd fought people in Africa, which they were totally used to, but they were white people in Africa, and they spent an awful long time fighting for not a lot of result because... 
even then, the British, I think, suspected that South Africa was going to be more problems than it was worth. Uh, and certainly the people who were going to get the money were going to be the Afrikaners and the diamond merchants, not necessarily uh, the British man in the street, who, you know, when he saw elephants in a parade, he said, oh, we conquered India, good for us. But with South Africa, I think it was a little more, uh, there, was, there was a little more questioning of it. And so the Boer War put the British in this sort of position of panic that Kaiser Bill then feeds like an idiot. And um, the uh, Erskine Childers began the whole uh, thing with the, uh, the Riddle of the Sands, which is the first sort of uh, invasion thriller ever. And then William Lequeux wrote a bunch of really, uh, really great British uh, German uh, sort of spy novels, uh, culminating in the invasion of 1910, which was serialized, as you mentioned, in the Daily Mail. And uh, because Lord Northcliffe was uh, what they called a navalist, meaning a hawk, who wanted Britain to rearm, and he supported a guy who called for a, a military draft that would draft every able-bodied man in uh, in England, or every, every able-bodied white man, I'm sorry, in England, into uh, a territorial army that would throw back the invader. And he was tied in with sort of the, I guess, nativist or anti-immigrant groups that were even then a part of the British scene, because the big paranoia was all the German waiters and barbers. And apparently, every German waiter or barber, being a young man, was obviously a secret member of the Landsturm waiting to grab up their uh, kitchen or uh, barbering razors and stab Britain right in the throat where it, where it counts. And they would go back and forth and have meetings and rallies and speeches and put into books that there were, you know, 350,000 German soldiers waiting for, the, for their tog so that they could rise up from their uh, restaurants and barbershops and seize power in Britain. Now, today I think of the, the Daily Mail as, <laughs> first of all, it's something that Simon, our friend Simon would refer to as worrying. Um, <laughs> it is the an extra tacky grade of tabloid. So whenever I see a link to something on a site that looks promising and I link through to that link thinking it might be something I might want to pass on to people, and then I go, oh, it's the Daily Mail. It's, it's, you know, you just can't, uh, you know, link to that in, in good conscience. And what was its... I don't imagine that in the aughts of the last century that uh, the Daily Mail was skeezy in the same way. So what was its uh, role then? Well, it was still skeezy in the same way. It was very much a paper that um, uh, wrote down to the... They didn't have the term least common denominator then. I forget what they call it, but it was like to the to the nearest convention or something like that. But they but they wrote uh, their, their things to be read by the uh, sort of a uh, guy with a couple of pennies to spare as opposed to uh, rich, educated toffs. And it combined that sort of um, sensationalism and gossip and scandal with, you know, uh, beating the drums for anti-foreigner sentiment. <laughs> the only time the Daily Mail apparently has ever liked foreigners was when they were Hitler. And so every other time, <laughs> they're again them. And so now the uh, in the 19 aughts, the, the Daily Mail was part of this uh, sort of generalized, everyone in Britain has to be more patriotic and everyone in Britain has to muscle up and, and rally to the colors. And they would put on, uh, the, there were people who wrote uh, plays about German invasion and then they would set up recruiting booths in the in the playhouse and uh, be amazed at how many people would sign up to the colors because of this sort of propaganda and war scare that they were sort of stirring up. And admittedly, with the very with the very great cooperation of Kaiser Wilhelm over in Germany, who was always happy to put his foot in anything if he could make it worse. And so the Daily Mail in particular, in this case, was uh, very service-oriented to its readers because the original draft of The Invasion of 1910, which, remember, was written before 1910, it was a near-future thing, uh, did not 
take the German invasion force through enough towns where daily male readership was heavy, so the editors asked him to revise it to make sure that he invaded the very heart of the daily male demographic. Once you start digging into this sort of um, spy scare world of the, of the aughts, there are so many characters. I mean, LeCue almost comes off as sort of the normal one. There's a guy named Roger Pocock who founded something called the Legion of Frontiersmen, which was sort of like a more muscular version of the Boy Scouts. And he would go around and encourage all of his recruits to send reports into the government of German spies that they saw anywhere, and especially any female that they met who showed an interest in the uh, uh, League of Frontiersmen was probably a German spy, and so they should all be <laughs> followed around and reported on. And eventually, he got um, uh, he got so crazy with his story. It was a story about being kidnapped by a German lion tamer woman who put him in a cage in the backyard with all of her pet lions, but fortunately he had a pepper mill secreted about his person yeah. and caused the lions to sneeze so that he could escape. And this he would retail with a straight face in crowds, and eventually the Legion of Frontiersmen began to say, you know, anyone who's spreading these kind of absolutely daft stories is probably a German agent. And so they ran him out of the Legion of Frontiersmen for being a German spy. And so this is the, the context in which William LeCue, with his mere 350,000 waiters waiting to kill us all, becomes sort of the voice of sanity and reason. I, I can't not underline the sexual, the psychosexual element of that. We frontiersmen really want to be left alone to be manly men together, <laughs> and uh, invading women will be treated as spies. Yes, there's, We're um, going off to be manly now. They, they say there will always be in England, but you just couldn't understand how. <laughs> Um, so with all of this uh, craziness going on, of, of which LeCue was just the tip of the focus-grouped nutty iceberg... I mean, he was certainly the Tom Clancy. He was he was one of the two really big selling spy novelists of the time, so he was doing all right. So is the extent to which he is sort of credited with creating the uh, emotional atmosphere that led to the formation of MI5, in fact, on the mark, in your opinion? Well, I mean, with these sorts of things, I mean, with the run-up to World War One, we've talked previously that trying to avoid that is a job of work, and that there is a very legitimate historical argument that says, nope, everyone in Europe hadn't had a war for a century, and they were just spoiling for it, and there was nothing you were going to do. But LeCue is obviously, um, you know, in uh, Anne Lindbergh's great phrase, uh, scum on the wave of history. And, <laughs> I mean, she said that about Hitler, but it, it applies to people like LeCue as well. And so he's he's sort of a symptom, if you will, of this sort of war fever. I think that making him a causative factor would be like indicting uh, Le Carre for the plague of cynicism and distrust in government uh, that, that happens in the 70s and 80s in Britain. I don't think that, you know, you can say that it's Le Carre's fault any more than you can say that it's Le Cue's fault that people are crazily suspicious of German waiters, although he doesn't, he certainly doesn't do anything to go out of his way to to fix the problem, so... That's, you know, sort of the situation. And it's certainly true that LeCue was socially connected with this guy, Colonel Edmonds, who was the head of the two-man <laughs> committee that was actually in charge of hunting spies in uh, England. Uh, and, you know, for an office that it was two guys and I think about six naval ratings, it did a fairly good job. I mean, in, in, in 1911, they busted up what German spy ring there was. They had a guy who um, was in Germany sending them, you know, records of German naval uh, procurement. And so they had some information on that. Everyone, because they'd been reading LeCue novels, they thought that the British Secret Service was huge and professional and full of uh, rich devil-may-care supermen. 
And so a lot of chancelleries apparently in Europe thought that all British tourists were probably spies. And so they had sort of an interesting knock-on effect with that. I would think particularly touring barbers and uh, waiters. <laughs> right, yes. <laughs> well, in, when, when English spies go abroad, they don't disguise themselves in bourgeois um, uh, capacities. <laughs> They're free-spending mylords who uh, gamble in uh, Deauville and other resorts. But the, uh, as, as Ian Fleming will have you know, but the, um, the, the terrific thing about, about sort of the, the war panic and the spy panic that LeCue and uh, Lord Northcliffe kick up is that when it comes time... And uh, Northcliffe is the is publisher, the publisher of, the of the Daily Mail. The, is that when it comes time to sort of set up a spy service in Britain, and, and you know, Colonel Edmonds is just sitting there, once World War One does break out, the the British government puts a huge amount of resources into espionage almost immediately. There's not the sort of long, slow buildup that you got with, say, the Americans uh, going into World War One, where it was, you know, Wild Bill Donovan and his buddies at Yale for a while. So, have you actually read any Lequeux? I have. I have never read any Le, any Lequeux. I've read bits of Lequeux that do not tempt me to read more Lequeux. Um, I've read his rival, E. Phillips Oppenheim, who gets a really bad rap for writing. Uh, terrible, terrible novels, but I find that I enjoy Oppenheim's sort of Edwardian drawing room sensibility of of spy novels uh, more than I enjoy Lequeux's sort of you know hysteria, and and it, it's just a, a flavor you know a distinction without a difference at this point. But I but I haven't read enough Lequeux to be able to you know speak to his development as a writer because as far as I can tell, sampling random pages. He doesn't ever seem to have developed as a writer. He does have a, a way with titles, though. He has the Utilitarian Foreign Spy. Mm -hmm. uh, he has the Intriguers, which you could still use as a cool title today. And there's my favorite, Strange Tales of a Nihilist. I'm actually more fond of his nonfiction, of course, which he wrote a huge amount of. Uh, one of his best being Things I Know About Kings, Celebrities, and Crooks, which was his memoir, which <laughs> is just a great title, and I may steal that for something, but I'm also really fond of uh, Rasputinism in London, Revelations of the Secret Cult of Beauty and, ha and Happiness, established by the monk Grichkata, and uh, he wrote a book about Landrew the uh, Strangler, so that's pretty great, and The Minister of Evil, The Secret History of Rasputin's Betrayal of Russia. Not a fan of Rasputin, apparently. So I'm I'm actually uh, and he wrote a book called Spies of the Kaiser, which was a fictional retelling of what he claimed were actual spy stories, but of course were yet more fictional stories, just without any any character development whatsoever. And so he, he was his nonfiction was also somewhat influential, and I suspect that was what his uh, his buddies in government were reading, as opposed to every single one of those. Uh, endless novels. But yeah, like I say, you look at these guys in the Edwardian era where they were just cranking them out and, you know, everything from Barrel of the Biplane to the secret telephone that right there, it's a secret telephone. That that's a great, that's a great hook right there. Although when you remember it's 1920, I guess it becomes a little less impressive. And uh, I'm looking on the security cam now and I see that there's someone outside the tradecraft hut who looks suspiciously like a lady lion tamer. So perhaps we'd better flee to the next segment. Grasp our pepper mills and go.
We opened the closet, and there on the hook are so many, many hats. If only there was some way we could be guided throughout these hats, these derbies, these trilbies, these uh, fedoras, these fezes. What, what, Robin, what do we pick out from among our many hats? Well, we're going to talk about uh, one of my hats, which is uh, one of my earliest hats is now getting a uh, rebrimming, as it were, because uh, I'd like to talk a bit about Feng Shui, uh, one of my earlier role-playing games, and the fact that we are uh, planning to bring it back, we being its current publisher, Atlas Games, in conjunction with Atomic Overmind. And so uh, I'm going to be uh, supervising the writing of the new edition, and uh, Cam Banks, uh, newly ensconced at Atlas Games, is going to be uh, spearheading the uh, playtesting and the development, and uh, and uh, Hal Mangold is going to be also doing creative oversight and exciting art direction, and we've sort of let the cat out of the bag a little bit that we're doing it. We're going to move forward with uh, more announcements, sort of soliciting input from people, and so I thought uh, some people suggested that they would like to hear more about it on the podcast, so here I am to say what I can about uh, where we're at on bringing back this game that a lot of people uh, still love and for many, many years have been asking me if there's going to be a new version. And uh, for a long time, uh, the answer was, oh, well, I don't know. And then the answer became, well, as soon as a whole bunch of busy people get their schedules together, and now the schedules are all aligned, the world of crowdfunding unfurls before us, and it seems like as good a time as any to update Feng Shui. So, Robin, for people who uh, did not begin playing Feng Shui back in the day, uh, or perhaps uh, were off-put by a game that seemed to be up rearranging your furniture, what is the elevator pitch, the two-minute uh, goal line stand for Feng Shui? What, what is the thing that will bring people back to a brought-back Feng Shui? Feng Shui is the Hong Kong action movie role-playing game. So, when it first came out, I was introducing Hong Kong action cinema to the world of nerddom, that its uh, wider notoriety had not yet been achieved. And that was the time even, you know, if you look at the book today, it talks about the imminent handover of Hong Kong to China. And so it uh, really uh, needs an update. And one of the tasks ahead of us is looking back at what, instead of being this hip new uh, thing that people are just discovering, is something that has already sort of had a golden age and sort of a, a senescence and now is roaring back in a new transformed dimension. And of course, that is Hong Kong action cinema. And it also just the tropes of uh, the uh, more accessible to some people uh, Hollywood action cinema. And it was designed, the entire setting, first of all, was designed in order to mash together different genres of action cinema so that there is a uh, time travel aspect to it where you are uh, trying to control the world's sites of power in order to reshape history, which is malleable. And there are uh, portals that allow you to go to different time periods, which just coincidentally happen to be the major time periods in which different styles of Hong Kong action cinema are set. So of course, you've got the present day for your uh, John Woo, Johnny Toe, heroic bloodshed-style action. You've got a uh, weird sort of futuristic element where you can do uh, Savior the Soul or the Heroic Trio. You've got a sort of a 
nebulously a historical uh, ancient period where you can do your uh, wuxia style action and that's uh, you know your flying people movies and your uh, some of the you know swordsman or crouching tiger or uh, whatever and that's the era where the bad guys are always evil eunuchs and then there's a 19th century juncture where you can go to and enact a lot of the slightly more realistic uh, fighting style uh, films where the conflict takes place uh, amid the sort of uh, rise of Western colonialism, and you get that sort of uh, political aspect uh, to that as well. And uh, the previous version uh, also had sort of a futuristic setting, and we're going to find uh, a new way to sort of mix that up and, and change that to something else, because one of the sort of things that was built into the setting from the get-go was that if your group or conspiracy seized enough feng shui sites, you could change the way history comes out and so we're going to demonstrate that in the new version by uh, introducing a, a new or changed time juncture. So that'll be fun. And then it, it is the fact of seizing things in the past, is that the reason that the present day window has moved from the early 90s to the mid-20-teens? Um, well, it'll, it will just be an, an update, I think. And so I don't know if we're going to... Uh, we do have iconic characters, mm -hmm. and I suppose that is an open question as to whether we want to have them all be the same age, and you encounter them as uh, 30-somethings now, just as you did then, and there's some sort of uh, in-setting explanation for that, or whether we want to treat it as this is a film franchise that is being revived, and there's a new generation of actors and perhaps a new generation of uh, heroes coming along, because the premise of the original game is that all of the hero characters were just wiped out just before you, the PC, start, mm -hmm. therefore giving you centrality and agency in the world. So it's never really been all that defined who all of the good guy characters are. Mm -hmm. And certainly a lot of, I think, the major kind of uh, characters that people want to see come back are ones who uh, could easily uh, have some uh, timey-wimey stuff going on. So that'll be an interesting idea to, to play with. And, of course, within the idea of having a predetermined setting, we of course want to give people options. So I think certainly one of the sections could discuss the pros and cons of taking either approach, either that the this is just a whole new reboot of the world and you're starting from scratch and that these new elements are being represented just in the present day, the way that you know the modern versions of Sherlock are presented in the modern day and there's no reference to the past, or whether you want to present it as a sequel revival that is part of whatever pre-existing continuity you established. And I think whether you want to do one or the other probably ties in pretty strongly to how much you've played Feng Shui in the past and how much you want to bring back stuff that happened previously or how much you want to just start off with a new slate because, of course, it's not going to be meaningful to a new player that there's this old history being revived. So probably... Yeah. You know, as I say it, it seems to me that the default option ought to be, you know, here's a, a a reboot that just happens to have all the cool elements that you used to like without referring to a complicated chunk of continuity that you're not going to need because the main point is to be shooting things and blowing them up and uh, dodging tentacle monsters uh, with your anti-unic magic. Yeah, you can always release like the continuity triad as a as a PDF standalone for people who want to play a game in which, you know, the the world of 1996 actually did change and 
alter. And when the communists took over, there was blah and blah and everything else. And it, it for those people, they can work their way up to the to the current future, and then for the rest of the people, they can just ignore it. I, I think that you're you've talked yourself in the right direction, as far as I'm concerned. In terms of uh, updates and changes, since you created Feng Shui very early, I guess in your game design career, was it like the first or second RPG that you built? It was my first full-on RPG. Right, and so going for obviously it's a terrific game. It was a terrific game in 1996. It's still a terrific game. I don't necessarily hold to some evolutionary school. Uh, or a teleological school, rather, of, of role-playing game design, but you've certainly gotten uh, more experienced, and some would probably say even better at game design since 1996. Is there mechanics that you want to revisit? Are there mechanics you want to change? Are there mechanics you're going to drop into the memory hole and claim they were never there? What's what's your what's your take on uh, a third edition in terms of its its uh, it, its rule structure or its mechanical structure? Feng Shui, as it was published, is a game that is not fully come to terms with all of the implications of its uh, innovations such as they were. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's something you could say of the uh, first Gumshoe game and that that, that is something that you want to continue to explore. And so there are things in there that now in retrospect, especially given the changes in attitude that that game helped to bring about, seem weird and need to be changed. Uh, for example, a, a great example of not really understanding its own implications is the fact that, uh, according to the book rules, it is, uh, gives you a penalty to do a really cool stunt in the middle of action because, oh, well, it must be more difficult to do a cool stunt. Mm -hmm. Now, that's clearly an that's, example. That, that's against the spirit of feng shui, for goodness right. sake. Uh, yes, totally. And, and, uh, that's one of those things that, you know, uh, it didn't take long after it coming out to go, what the hell were we thinking? Um, and what the hell we were thinking was that's a chunk of sort of a, an old uh, sort of simulationist idea of what players should be capable of, as opposed to the emulationist style that Feng Shui uh, shoots for in, in so many other ways. And there are little things like the uh, uh, the big bruiser character has never quite worked. It's difficult using the core mechanics that are used in Feng Shui to have a character who doesn't hit very often, but when he does, really hits hard. Uh, and so there's got to be a way to fix him so that he uh, fits the, the cinematic uh, trope. Uh, now, you usually see that guy as a bad guy, but occasionally he shows up as a second banana good guy, as uh, you know Richard Keel's Jaws does in the second uh, uh, Bond movie that he appears in. And so you still need that character, and he needs to uh, work better. But I don't think we're looking at a gigantic overhaul of the rules so much as finding the bits and pieces that don't match the implications or just sort of on a practical level, not on a grander philosophical level, uh, don't work. And there's certainly people who played Feng Shui much longer than we playtested it for, people who played it for many, many years, longer than its development cycle. And I've certainly heard that there are places where the game begins to break down, and so it would be great to get feedback from those people and help to remove those places. I suspect part of it is just to, after a while, hit a graduated improvement cycle where you your improvement cycle just slows over time because um, unlike a uh, an F20 game, the power progression is not what keeps you playing. It's the cool, fun things that you envision your characters doing at the table, and you're not so focused on adding new crunchy bits and stuff. So that if we just sort of slow that power progression over time and allow you to make your character cooler and more interesting without inflating the action values to a point where the math doesn't work anymore. I think that's probably 
the way to go on that. Uh, an early question that we've gotten that I has reminded me of a issue that people have with feng shui, which I think it would be actually disastrous to fix, is that there are a lot of people who want to have an alternate to the template system that is more of a character build system. Mm. And the uh, reason I would much prefer to, if people identify an action movie trope character that is not represented by a template in the game, is to provide that template rather than to create a backdoor build system, which would mostly be used to create characters that are not cinematic and will make the game feel less like a Hong Kong action movie if a bunch of players show up with those characters at the game. And very often when I then ask, turn that question around and say, well, what action movie character is missing from the game as it stands, especially since there were a lot of additional uh, templates provided in supplementary material, some of which we will want to fold into the main game and some of which I think will still be too marginal. But the, usually the answer is, well, how do you play the noodle shop owner from Tampopo? Or, well, you don't. <laughs> uh, because the noodle shop owner from Tampopo is not an action movie character. It is, you know, Tampopo is a fabulous film and it's an Asian film, but it's not a Hong Kong action film. Right. It does sort of play with some of those action tropes. But if you show up with your fully statted noodle shop owner, you are going to have less fun playing Feng Shui <laughs> and the people around you are going to have less fun playing. And so that I think is going to be an interesting exercise in expectations management because often there are things that people think they want to add to a game that in fact would lead to disappointing unfun play if they were provided with it. And so uh, that demand for a template building system is one that I want to meet just by giving people all the templates they need to play all of the action movie characters that ought to be in a game of Feng Shui. And the, and the great thing is that now in the, you know, sort of uh, robust era of the internet, there's going to be four or five fan-made uh, character build systems out there, and you can link to them without comment from the, you know, game's uh, support page and never mention it uh, in print ever, ever, ever. <laughs> yes, it's, and, and I think, I guess, we could maybe even do a later gaming out on that whole question of uh, when you want to foreclose options as a designer because you know that those options will lead to a play that either doesn't evoke the spirit that you're trying to evoke and, and muddles the identity of the game that you're trying to create. Uh, there are people who want those rules to be spun out into a more generic rule set. And A, I'm creatively uninterested in doing that. And B, I'm contractually bound not to do that <laughs> and uh, not to do it by, and, you know, and just ethically bound not to do it by any sort of backdoor way. So uh, the game that comes out will still be focused on what it does well, which is Hong Kong action movie role playing. Right. And for God's sake, people, fate exists now. You have your, your game of, Lucy Goosey punching each other in the head, uh, exciting pulpy combat, uh, generic system already. So, you, 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 there you go. Robin made it happen. There, I'll just uh, give everybody the URL to uh, Evil Hat. I'm right, done. and let and let Fred answer all those emails. Okay, um, I think that uh, since we are now plugging someone else's game, we are now no longer wearing your hat and can yes. move on to yes. the next. Yes, to, to, to heck with that evil hat. <laughs> yes, that's right. It's all of our hats are good hats. What have we done?
The whirring of chronotons and the clanking of time rotors indicates that we have once more entered the proximity of Ken's time machine. This is the segment in which Time Incorporated sends Ken back into the past to effectuate and adjust its events. So the assignment this week is to extend Periclean Athens by generation. And speaking of evil, this uh, is a uh, suggested Time Incorporated commission from uh, listener Brett Evil. Mm. So, uh, Ken, perhaps you could start by giving us the context of uh, Periclean Athens. I think this is what we generally think of as the uh, golden age of Athens. And do you uh, have a contrarian view on that point? No, no, no. I think uh, Periclean Athens was indeed the golden age of Athens. It was the age, obviously, of the uh, great Athenian dramatists. Uh, Pericles begins his career, in fact, by sponsoring a performance of uh, Aeschylus' The Persians. While Pericles is in charge, they build the Parthenon. They uh, engage in a large program, not just of civic beautification, but civic improvement. They, you know, dredge out the Piraeus. They put up uh, all manner of new uh, infrastructure. He engages in a number of uh, uh, very uh, populist and democratic reforms to the Athenian law. So the the actual sort of uh, lived existence of uh, the Athenian uh, common man gets better, I think, under under Pericles. And obviously, uh, you have, uh, as you have with a lot of times, when common men, or at least the bourgeoisie, are given a couple of nickels to rub together in some spare time, an explosion of uh, art, both popular and high. So you get, uh, obviously, I mentioned Aeschylus, but you get all of the playwrights who follow Aeschylus are sort of being brought on, and they compete for uh, prizes given out by the city and, by, and prizes given out by various uh, cults and, and money given out by uh, rich uh, uh, jerks. And uh, there is a uh, sort of the great uh, Athenian era of Greek, of what we think of as classical Greek, Greek sculpture comes about in Periclean times. Uh, even pottery and, uh, and the painting on pottery becomes, uh, you know, sort of takes on a, a new character and a new energy. It's, you would be hard-pressed until you get maybe to Elizabethan Britain uh, or um, uh, the Holland uh, the, of the Dutch Renaissance, uh, maybe Florence, to find an era when... There is more people enjoying more art of better quality than Periclean Athens. So Periclean Athens is is the bee's knees, and I and I don't ha have any truck with people who are like, oh well, it'll just all end in tears. You just watch. It's like, yeah, everything ends in tears, but not everything gets you the Parthenon on the way. So screw you, people. Right. So if the mission is to extend it by a generation, this implies that it came to an end, and how in fact uh, did it come to an end? Well, it came to an end uh, in you know in fine. As a result of the Peloponnesian War, uh, the uh, Pericles uh, basically was th sort of the the uh, archon or the guy in charge of Athens, uh, the most popular and uh, uh, and powerful of the uh, Athenian orators. And when they are going to war against their great enemy Sparta, his argument is nothing can beat the Athenian navy. So if we just build walls all the way around Athens and its port, what they call the Long Walls, and everyone in Athens lives inside those walls. There's nothing the Spartans can do. They can spend, you know, it, apparently it's really hard to chop down an olive tree, so the Spartans couldn't even really wreck Athenian agriculture by raiding into Attica. They, you know, ran off all the cows and such, but that was pretty much it. And so the Spartans are left sitting out there with an unbeatable army that the Athenians don't bother to fight. Being thwarted by trees. Being thwarted by trees. And Pericles' argument is that the navy can slowly pick off Sparta's allies overseas and eventually Sparta will be forced to sue for peace because all of their allies will desert them because at any point the Athenian navy might swoop down and burn their city. 
And as strategies go, this is a great one up until an outbreak of a still unknown plague kills a third of everyone penned up in those walls, including Pericles. Uh, the, 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 the plague of Athens killed, um, untold numbers of people. I mean, literally untold numbers of people. Probably, uh, you know, like I say, about a third of the city, maybe more. And it really tore the heart out of not just Athens in terms of their military effort. They were forced to sue for peace. Uh, and, and have uh, what they called the, uh, the, the, um, the peace of, I think it's Nepos or, or Nikos in between phases of the Peloponnesian War. But it also tears the heart out of the Athenian democracy because, of course, the people who died are disproportionately the urban city dwellers who are sort of the, the backbone of Athenian democracy. The, the, uh, landowners are guys who are either, you know, off on their own island somewhere or have, uh, kept their, uh, their, their household separate from those of the, of, of the people in the city, and so they are left holding more of the demographic bag at the end of the thing. So, the, and, and, as sort of the final insult, Pericles dies in the Plague of Athens, and so he's not able to use his political genius to fix the situation after the plague runs its course, which it finally did after five years of tearing the hell out of Attica. And so the, the Plague of Athens is sort of the immediate thing that you want to fix if you want to extend Pericles in Athens. And so, so does this make this a mission for Dr. Ken? I think it may make it a mission for Dr. Ken. I go back, I, I take a bunch of cheek swabs and such, and go back up to the future, wherever they can cure whatever it was. Although, if the theory that uh, the University of Maryland developed, which was that it was typhus, um, there's not going to be a lot of, you know, necessarily a lot of ways to cure it, because that's sort of caused by having all those animals and people just jammed up together, and you're sort of stuck with that situation, unless... You convince Pericles to in, in the in in the run up to all this to dig a whole bunch of modern sewers, which is going to take some doing, I suspect. Um, there's other possibilities. It might have been a viral hemorrhagic fever. Thucydides, the great historian of the Peloponnesian War, said the plague came out of Ethiopia, which implies a tropical source of the plague, as opposed to something like measles or uh, the Black Plague, which both come out of Asia and wouldn't have been uh, like this. Also, the symptoms kind of match. A viral hemorrhagic fever of one kind or another, and while symptoms of diseases are vastly different in uh, virgin field epidemics as opposed to what they are after a population has developed antibodies to it, um, and that's why something like the mumps can kill you know half of Japan in the seventh century A.D. Um, but you have the very strong possibility that we still couldn't cure whatever uh, caused that plague, and maybe not even Time Incorporated has gone far enough ahead to cure Ebola or whatever that might have been. So I think that, as with so many things, rather than sort of treat the symptom, which is, in this case, treating the disease, I would like to go back and destroy Sparta. Because Sparta, uh, for those who are not aware, and or have perhaps listened to uh, uh, Frank Miller more than they should, was a hellish slave state. It basically sort of North Korea, but without the quaint charm um, and good food. And so the uh, Spartans are cruising for bruising. They sit on with their tiny population of, of hoplites and, um, uh, and, and and landowners on top of an immense slave population called helots. And if you go back to 464 BC, there is a giant earthquake that knocks the hell out of Sparta and all and causes an immense helot uprising. And uh, it, had it not been for King Archidamus, uh, sort of fortuitously waking up in the middle of the night and leading the army to safety. Uh, so that it was available to stab all the helots in the face, there uh, might very well have been a full-on 
overthrow of the Spartan political situation there. And I think that by going back and rather than bringing a bunch of ampules of uh, typhus antibiotics, if I bring a whole lot of Roman gladiuses and leave them buried in certain hills that I will tell the helots about later, and then make sure that King Archidamus, uh, I, I will appear, appeal to his uh, Spartan uh, uh, vanity about his physical prowess and challenge him to a drinking contest, and since he will never have drunk distilled spirits in his life, I will win that easily. Um, <laughs> and he will be lying in bed, uh, and uh, his palace will ideally fall on him during the earthquake. Do you think he's sufficiently gullible to engage in a drinking contest where you were the one supplying the previously unknown form of alcohol? Well, we'll do a swap, right? Uh, you know, I'll drink his um, uh, horrible, uh, watery, uh, oiled wine, and he will drink my alcohol. We'll, it, it'll be fair as fair, right? We each bring our own weapon. If I can't talk a Spartan into an idiotic uh, gesture of manliness, then I'm not doing my job as a time operative. I don't know. I, I think he might be worried about uh, poisoning Oh, or but see, I'm drinking it too. That's the thing, right? Oh, you're drinking yours as yeah, well? Yeah, I'm drinking vodka. I can, okay, I can, there you go. I can outdrink him on, 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 any, on any floor you want to name. I can take Archidamus. So you'd, in fact, just, be, you'd just give him a little head start by getting started on the vodka sooner, and you'd prove your bona fides and uh, lull him into a false sense of security. Exactly. And then he would uh, be lying there insensible from the worst drunk he's ever been on when his palace, uh, one hopes, falls in on him. And uh, the Spartan army is caught in the rubble. And uh, as opposed to being able to uh, bring the other conservative states of Greece in to help them put down their slave uprising, uh, the Athenians are already sort of on the bubble about helping out. They sent uh, a, a unit that the Spartans sent back uh, and sort of, we don't need your filthy Athenian ways with your uh, hipster letting people vote and touch the uh, and touch gold. And so that got the Athenians all mad at the Spartans. So I think you could probably have a similar uh, effect as the Spartans uh, stiff-neckedly with and hungoverly refuse uh, Athenian help. And before they realize that they need it, the helots have stabbed them all in the face. And we have uh, probably not a particularly uh, salutary state in the Peloponnese, but we don't have the Spartan dictatorship, which means we don't have the Peloponnesian War, which means we don't have the entire population of Athens jammed up inside the long walls when whatever it is shows up from Africa or Asia and kills all the people. And it, if I sort of belt and suspenders it by making sure to get uh, Pericles to dig a couple of sewers, then maybe maybe we do escape the plague as well. So I guess the main challenge here for you then is to escape a collapsing palace while vodka to the gills. Ah, that's nothing. Um, I, I think that, uh, first of all, I can have my time machine carefully squirreled away in whatever uh, Spartan quarters they've provided me, and I can hop into it and uh, disappear in a uh, whir of time rotors as the so palace So you just have to away. rush to the time machine Doctor Who style. Exactly, Doctor Who style, or uh, Enterprise beaming out style. Uh, and uh, even then, I, I suspect that uh, I have gotten out of worse situations. Well, maybe not worse than the earthquake of 464, but pretty bad situations while liquor to the gills before. I right. And certainly, that's... as we know, there is no breathalyzer on the uh, time machine. And, uh, no, that's, that, 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 that had to be disabled very early. Uh, well, I, I like this solution because, uh, like you, I think the Spartans were a bunch of jerks. And I'm happy to uh, see them laid low uh, in this new timeline. Yeah, I think the, um, the, the other great thing is that the knock-on effect of having sort of free states in the Peloponnese will probably also 
help encourage Pericles in his uh, campaign to bring democracy to Athens. It will, if anything, sort of reinforce his uh, power uh, in a way that uh, is more sort of towards the good side of his social goals, as opposed to tempting him into using military dictator powers the way that he had to as the Peloponnesian War got underway. So I think that we get sort of all the good social policy and not quite so much of the being a militarist in order to uh, keep um, the uh, in, in, military dictator in order to keep the city from falling apart. Who knows? A new Sparta might have its own a great golden age of the arts. Yeah, especially if, if if they overturn that law that said all their money has to be made of iron so that no one in Greece wants to sell them anything. <laughs> uh, well, now that we have uh, dealt with that uh, little self-defeating bit of isolationism, I think we can pronounce your latest adjustment of the time stream successful and uh, send you off into the time machine to uh, make it happen. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Matthew Rossi. Dork Tower. Pro Fantasy Software. And Pelgrane Press. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Help keep this golem off we going by clicking the donate button at kenandrobintalkaboutstuff.com. Subscribe to the show on iTunes, Downcast, or your podcast app of choice. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff. <laughs>